0: As soon as you said you were setting up the Patreon, it was just like, yeah, I'll help this guy. I'd take a lot of value from it. You know, it's as simple as that. Do you consider yourself a helpful person? If so, would you be willing to help support me and my team on Patreon so we can keep bringing you this awesome podcast? Every little penny will help. If you are willing to help, go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Or check the link in your episode notes below. One of the many perks of supporting us on Patreon is that you can instantly schedule a call with me to help you with your current or future business. If you check out the beginning of episode 119, you can get a glimpse of what you're in store for. So to sign up for this awesome opportunity, go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon.
1: I wasn't well-established enough on my own to go to borrow the money from the bank, brought on a private investor to help us do that. He put up all the money to start this division, so we're off and running. Really exciting time. Here we are about a year into it, and we're losing money. That was a terrifying time. Money, 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 money. That's a lot of business owners understand that. I mean, first thing you got to do is be profitable, and then next thing you got to do is have cash, and profitability doesn't always equal cash. Doubled the size of our facility, doubled our people, doubled our revenue, doubled our problems for sure. Yeah, it was a little bit of everything. We like to joke if you had a pulse and you could weld, we would hire you. <laughs> right. Just had to be hustling all the time. And there's a lot of years of just grinding it out, just tiny incremental progress. My name is Matthew Nix. I'm 33 years old. My role here at Nix Companies is president. We're located in Poseyville, Indiana, which is a small town right in the heart of the Midwest, about 2,000 people in our town. And we recently became the largest employer in the town. So that's kind of neat and also a sense of responsibility. And how many people work at your company? As of today, I think 64 full-time. Okay. Were you born and raised in Poseyville, Indiana? I was. I've been here my whole life grown up around the business, which kind of leads me to something that's sort of interesting, I guess. When I tell people I'm part of a family business, which my brother and I are the fifth generation here, they automatically assume that we just sort of walked into a company established somewhat to the degree that it is today. But that's really not the, in fact, how it was at all. When I joined the business, it was just my dad, my grandfather, and my aunt didn't have any team members outside the family. My brother and I have grown the business quite a bit. It's got some interesting dynamics. On one hand, it's a longtime legacy family business that was well-established for a reputation. which we certainly built upon and wouldn't be where we're at without that. But on the other hand, there's a lot of ways it feels like a startup. We've went from no team members outside the family to 60 plus in a matter of seven or eight years, pretty rapid growth, at least in our industry sector.
0: That's rapid growth in any industry sector, because honestly, if you grow too fast as well, people have issues with that, even though it's been a family business, like you were saying, there's basically three people and they're all the family members. And now you're at 60 plus people, right? That's right. Yeah. When you actually joined, did you always have this vision to wanting to grow this company that had been handed down through the family? Or what was the deal with you wanting to expand it?
1: Yeah, I think I always did. I don't remember the moment where I was really like, okay, we're going to do this. But I was always a little bit entrepreneurial. A you know, funny story about that, my grandma would pay us, I think she paid us $10 to clean the gutters. And I remember convincing my younger cousin that I would pay him $5 to do it. And then I would just take the other five as my cut. So I think that was the first time looking back, recalling the entrepreneurial spirit that I had. But anyways, yeah, I grew up in the business and I worked through high school and I went to trade school for one year and came back and joined the business. And I just saw an opportunity there that I thought could be a lot more just really from the beginning. People ask me all the time where we're at now. Did you ever envision it being where it is today? And they're really shocked when I tell them. Absolutely. Yes, I did. But then what I also say kind of tongue in cheek is right here today is about the limit of what I envisioned originally. So I don't know where the hell we go from here. (laughs) Right. Why don't we talk a little bit more about
0: the company first, and then we'll talk about you starting off in the company just so we're on the same page. So what exactly is the Knicks Companies?
1: Nick's companies, we call ourselves a diversified metal solutions provider, and you're probably wondering what in the hell that is. We specialize in industrial product sales. That revolves around mainly safety and material handling products. We do manufacturing services, which range from fabrication, industrial coatings, and then we also do industrial maintenance and field services. A lot of the work we do revolves around manufacturing companies, heavy industrial companies, do some work for the ag industry and also for the government that's in a broad scope of what we do what are your, like your customers
0: especially even before you even started working there how did y'all actually make money like who would call y'all and what yeah. would you deliver to make money for
1: yeah, that's a great question. And that's changed to some degree over the years. We started as a blacksmith shop. My great-great-grandfather founded it in 1902 here in Poseyville as a blacksmith. Essentially, his customer base was almost exclusively farmers, local agriculture. But we're in a very predominantly agricultural area here. From 1902, really even today, a good base of our customers is agriculture related. But in the 90s, my dad started shifting into commercial fabrication a little bit. And that's where we've really grown the businesses in the commercial and industrial side. So those customers would look like automotive manufacturers. There's a lot of plastics industry in this area, plastics manufacturing, power plants, oil refineries, steel mills, things of that nature.
0: When they're calling you, are they saying they need a certain piece of metal cut out and you all cut it out and give it to them? Or Because I don't have much of a manufacturing background, and I imagine most of the people right. listening probably don't understand all the intricacies involved in doing this.
1: Yeah. What we do largely revolves around safety and efficiencies within their facilities. For example, they've got a big piece of equipment that they need to have safe access to do maintenance on it. They would call us up and say, hey, I've got this problem. I need you to come in here and help me solve it. And we've got engineers on staff. We'll help design that solution and then we'll fabricate that, powder coat it. We've got a team that would install it on site. So that's a good example of what we might do. But then there's also things where they'll just send us drawings, say of a building expansion. We'll fabricate the structural steel from those drawings.
0: Anything involved with this kind of steel, like people would, what would you say the majority just to make it as easy as we can? And then we can go kind of year by year how you grew it and what you expanded into. But that seems like that makes a lot of sense what you're talking about, maybe with the warehouse and having to do the welding or they're calling you about the steel pieces. Is there anything else that people are calling you about and that you're helping them with?
1: Yeah, we do sandblasting, painting, and powder coating. And we do that in our shop as well as on-site for our customers. The on-site work would revolve around a lot of industrial maintenance where we're coming in and possibly sandblasting old parts that are rusted or need to be cleaned and applying a new coating to them on site. We do that in a lot of heavy industrial applications, power plants, oil refineries, things like that.
0: Okay. And then basically when you had taken over in the nineties, y'all were doing all this or before you actually took over, but your dad, for instance, he was doing all of this, but it was on a smaller scale.
1: He really wasn't doing hardly any of that. They were still what we would call a welding shop, people bringing in equipment that was broken mm-hmm. and we're welding it up and fixing it. That was the core part of our business. He did a little bit of what I would consider commercial fabrication where you're designing and building a platform or a set of stairs, but that was a very small part of our business. And that was it. There was no coatings. There was no on-site work. My brother and I have expanded into all of those areas since taking over.
0: This sounds good. I think we got to kind of understanding. I understand some of the stuff that y'all do, but why don't we go ahead and reel it back to when you actually got in within the company? Maybe when you graduated high school because yeah, you didn't go to college. How about we take it like year by year on what you did with the company to kind of get it to where it is today.
1: Right. I graduated high school in 2003, and our school has a program that I think we need a lot more of today, and that was where I worked half day and went to school half day. I got my core curriculum done and was able to do that. For any young people that are thinking about getting into a trade, there's a huge need for, that was a great opportunity. I was able to work in my family business half day, my senior year, and I'd been working there growing up through the summer, but was able to really take it to the next level. And so I did that. The next year, I went to a local trade school for a two-year program. I ended up doing the welding program in a year and decided to come back and join the business. In 2004, I joined the business full-time and just worked alongside my dad and grandpa learning the business and had a lot of harebrained ideas. And fortunately, they didn't let me pursue all of them. And I'd like to joke that I was really frustrated with my dad. I had all these ambitions and things. And as I've gotten older, maybe a little bit more mature, I've learned that it was probably a good balance because he was sort of like a rubber band and I, I was still moving forward. But had he not been holding me back, I may have ran out so far and so fast. And fallen so hard that I couldn't get back up. And he certainly let me make mistakes and fail along the way. But that kind of kept me from falling so hard that I couldn't get back up and tried some things. Some things worked. Some things didn't work. There was four or five years there where I didn't feel like we're making any progress. And I think that's one point I want to try to make to the listeners is I even talked to some of our young leaders about that. We're in a society where we want everything right now and it can get frustrating and stagnated and you feel like you're working and working and and there's no progress, but you're planting those seeds, you're paying your dues. And it's almost like a law of gravity. I mean, you just can't parachute into success. I mean, you got to pay your dues. If you don't, you're not going to stay there long at least. So four or five years of nothing happening or felt like anyways, but looking back, I know that I was really planting those seeds and we got an opportunity. A gentleman came to me and wanted to build a custom yacht out of steel here we are, a little mom and pop welding shop that works on farm equipment. And this guy wants us to build him a yacht in the middle of a cornfield.
0: Yeah, I was about to say, I didn't think you were near any water. I was looking at a map at Poseyville. I didn't see any yacht stuff around.
1: Yeah. So we're about 25 miles from the Ohio River. Okay, You can imagine, fast forward, we ended up building the thing and it was very noteworthy. It got a lot of publicity and we were on every news channel and got newspaper articles, magazine articles and I tell people that really wasn't a big money maker for us but it was a hell of a publicity opportunity. we made our normal wages on the job but it's not like we were getting rich building this yacht. It ended up being about a million dollar yacht when it was all said and done. Of course our piece of that was a smaller percentage of that. There was a lot of pieces that came together to make the finished product but it was really incredible.
0: Do you mind if I saw you Derek? Molecule is a reimagining the future of clean air starting with the air purifier. It's not just an improvement on existing, outdated technology, but a complete reinvention of air purification. Unlike HEPA filters, Molecule destroys indoor air pollutants at a molecular level, completely removing them from the air you breathe. Molecule uses photoelectrochemical oxidation, also known as Petco, nanotechnology to eliminate allergens, mold, bacteria, viruses, and airborne chemicals. The scientific breakthrough enables Petco to destroy pollutants a thousand times smaller than what HEPA filters can capture. For example, pollen isn't the only problem. While it's easy to blame pollen for runny noses, watery eyes, and sneezes, it's actually the tiny proteins that break off of pollen that are responsible for seasonal allergies. Although less visible, these allergens cause huge problems and pass right through traditional air purifiers. What sets Molecule apart is its breakthrough using the Petco technology that destroys these tiny particles, leaving nothing but clean air. Molecule's technology has been personally effective and verified by science. But most importantly, it's been tested by real people. See, Molecule has given allergy and asthma sufferers around the country an all-new experience. So, for you to experience that experience and save $75 off your first order... Visit Molecule, that's M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E dot and at checkout, enter code MILLIONAIRE. Again, for $75 off your first order, go to Molecule, that's M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E dot com, and at checkout, enter code MILLIONAIRE. Are yachts usually made out of steel? Because it seems kind of weird that this guy all of a sudden came out of nowhere
1: to you and asked you about a yacht, and y'all didn't really have an experience with that. No, we didn't have any experience. There's Some yachts are made of fiberglass and some are aluminum, some are steel. The connection with us, this gentleman was from the area originally. He had moved away and traveled around the world and had done well financially, came back to the area later in life. And his dad had done business with my grandfather. So there was a long relationship there. He was just looking for someone that would really work with him to build a custom yacht the way he wanted it. And he wanted to be very hands-on in the process. He came to us and my grandfather Grandpa likes to say I was just young enough and dumb enough to take it on. And so there we were.
0: That's about five years in. You're saying that maybe you finally got some publicity for the company. But up to that point, you had still been
1: doing everything that your dad and grandpa had originally done. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Up until that point, not a lot had changed. I mean, I was there. We were welding, fixing farm equipment doing the occasional commercial fabrication project. Nothing's really changed for the most part. My dad and grandpa were supported me in building that because they took care of the core business while I spent two years building this custom masterpiece really. And from that publicity and also the confidence that I gained in that project, thinking if I can build this, I think I can do about anything and just catapulted from that. Coming right out of that one, our first big commercial project about Right as that project was coming to an end and this commercial project that we won doubled our business overnight, the one project we took on was as much revenue as what we were doing on an entire annual basis at the time. Literally doubled us instantly and we had to scramble and hire the first team members, expand the team to get the work done. We had to buy equipment and that's really what started the real growth trajectory of the company.
0: We'll dive into that in a second, but I don't want to brush over the kind of like the first 5 years where it seemed like much wasn't getting done. I mean, as far as maybe your role, I don't know if you wanting to expand the company. Was there any frustrations with your family as far as dealing with that? Cuz I know some people maybe just want to leave the company cuz I feel like I can't do my own thing, I'm going to go start my own. Just tell us about the frustrations dealing with that in case anyone's listening in a family business and maybe the younger guy who wants to try to help expand it, but the way to actually do it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's a hell of a topic right there. You could a whole podcast devoted to that. Yeah, lots of frustration. You're in your early 20s and you think you know everything. And, and I'm very ambitious and audacious. And You mix that in with a hundred year family business that's pretty set in its ways. And, and it was a boiling pot. Yeah, I had my disagreements with my dad and my grandpa, and my aunt, all individually. And there was certainly moments where I thought about leaving and doing my own thing thought seriously about it. I remember one specific instance where I was sitting with my, she's now my wife, but was my girlfriend or fiance at the time and was just in tears. I was so upset and was telling her, I think I'm going to go out on my own. And I just felt like I couldn't get anywhere with them. And fortunately, we pressed through those things. I even pressured, but I convinced my dad to sell me half the company at a very young age because I was entrepreneurial and I wanted to forge my own path. I think there was some real intuition there on my dad's part to do that because it ended up working out really great for him too, for both of us. I was better off staying with the company. I certainly know that. But had he not got me in on it, I may have left. And I probably would have done some things on my own, probably not to the scale of what we've been able to accomplish. But it was better for everybody. I stayed there.
0: Why don't we jump back to when you were saying you got that first big contract? Because that seems like the first stepping stone of after you made the steel yacht for two years. Would you say that's the first major stepping stone of you kind of helping build this company to where it got to today?
1: Yeah, I think it was. It was a huge watershed moment for us. We took on this contract that doubled our business overnight and we didn't have enough people to do the work. We didn't have enough equipment to do the work. Here's my brother and I trying to figure out how we're going to get all this work done. And the one thing about the growth is we never leaned on our dad to bail us out. I mean, he was supportive. He did his thing and he let us go, but we also didn't lean on him. We did it on our own. He did continue to do the work he had been doing and we just had to figure out a way to get this work done. We decided to work two shifts. We hired three or four people. We didn't have enough equipment to do it all in one shift. So we would do the farm equipment and the core business during the day. And we would build these commercial buildings that were for mining applications. At night, my brother and I took turns working the night shift. We worked 410 on nights. On Mondays, I would work a double shift. On Tuesdays, he would work a double shift. And we were running the night crew. They were basically there as a supervisor and a working supervisor. So there was always one of us there every night.
0: Tell us about this contract because you told us you get a big contract. I think I've kind of understood a little bit what it is, but what this contract involved.
1: It was building some modular equipment enclosures for coal mines. So they were modular steel buildings that housed electrical controls.
0: Did you get that contract because you put it out for bid? Because it sounded like y'all had never done anything like this before. Like, How were you able to get that business?
1: Yeah, we hadn't done anything like that. We were doing some smaller projects for a contact I had in the industry, and he was happy with our work. And I just kept looking for more opportunities and was quizzing him on other things, that other opportunities that there might be. And he said, well, I'm getting ready to award this big contract to build all these buildings. You wouldn't be interested in that, would you? And he had sort of overlooked us, even though he's happy with our work, because he didn't think we were big enough to handle it. We said, absolutely, give us a shot. So I put in the bid and we won the project and we delivered for him and we made money at it. So he was happy and we were happy.
0: Yeah, that's good because I would imagine your first time doing this that you might not make money on it. But if it's your first big contract like this, you said you worked a smaller one. Proportion-wise, I guess you could figure it out. That'd be my only worry, that maybe you finally got the contract that you're looking to grow the business. But at the same point in time, you better deliver and make money doing it, right?
1: Yeah, it was a little nerve-wracking. I was actually going on vacation in December that year, and I was on the airplane figuring my bid. And I came back and turned it in. And just remember thinking it was kind of like rolling the dice, the biggest gamble I'd ever it was, it was a half a million dollar job. At the time, we were only doing a half a million in annual sales. So yeah, it was a little bit of a gamble, but it was calculated.
0: Yeah. Imagine that you just keep recalculating to make sure if you're going to basically double your business that year, right? Yep. You said your brother several times. So why don't you tell us how old is he and what's he helping you do in the company at this time?
1: Yeah, he's 31. He's a couple of years younger than me and he runs one of our operating divisions. So we have five core operating divisions that all operate independently, much like their own company. They're all subsidiaries of our parent company. So my brother runs one of those We have the unfortunate situation of I'm his boss, we're co-owners, but we do have a very defined org chart here. Every family does it different, but it works out good for me and him. And I appreciate his role so much, and he does a wonderful job leading that division, and he's told me many times, Matthew, I don't want your job. The dynamic works for us. He's happy to be number two, and he likes knowing that when the hard decisions have to be made, that I've got to make them. I certainly solicit his feedback, and we have a lot of conversations where we're trying to figure out out where we go next. But he's happy with taking a back seat sometimes.
0: So it sounds like your brother had kind of the same thought process. Was he the guy that you would talk to about business too, that was around your age? Because I imagine around Poseyville, it doesn't seem like there might be a lot of other entrepreneurs for you to bounce ideas off, especially in your age range, I guess.
1: Yeah, that's funny. You said that there's not a lot. And I stumbled into a group. Fellow entrepreneur was putting together a local group here. It's several communities in the area, not just our little town, but several small towns. There are seven of us that were in this group. And we started meeting once a month for dinner and having some beers together, talking business. We've been doing that now regimentedly for five years. Every single month, I meet with this group. They've had a huge impact on me and on our business. And we've grown very close. But that gives me an outlet to get around like-minded people once a month and share ideas and share challenges. And it's been a really powerful thing.
0: And I think though, this is really important because before that, was your brother the only person you could talk to? I guess you could talk to your family about business per se, but was there anybody else before you met, had this group kind of come together five years ago?
1: No, not really. Even within the family, I mean, I didn't talk about the vision. Right. They might say no, right? Well, they thought I was crazy. <laughs> I right, thought right. I was freaking nuts. I'd like to joke with my dad. I said, you can be crazy and be right. They knew that I had ideas, but I didn't voice them to the extent that I could with this business group. And my brother and I were, talked more candidly about it. know, one of the reasons he joined the business, I had been working in the business several years and starting to grow it. When he joined, he got out of college in that period, that 08, 09 period where there was no jobs. He graduated with one of those really awesome marketing or management reviews <laughs> that about 5 million other people have. And there was no wonderful jobs out there. And he thought, well, this family business thing might not be such a bad idea. He was open to the growth. I mean, when he joined, we had to grow.
0: And well, tell us about this group, because I think some people are missing that from time to time. And I think that's why they listen to podcasts like these to try to like get around like minded people, even though they're not necessarily talking to you. Hopefully I'm not asking the questions that they're thinking, but just tell us some of the things that y'all are able to talk about and how that group's helped you. So maybe we're inspired to join a group like that or maybe even create our own because it's hard to talk about business to your regular. I'm sure you've got other friends that don't own their own businesses and they're not even interested in talking about that type of stuff, right?
1: Sure. It's so important to get around other like-minded people like that and share ideas First thing I'll say is it's a diversified group. We're all in different businesses, which is part of the value in it. I'm involved now in some other organizations where I'm around similar businesses. That has value too, but from a true entrepreneurial or self-improvement standpoint, the diversity in the group is really valuable. We can all bring a different perspective to the group and we talk, we try to go around the table every month and share some big wins and then also share some challenges or maybe it's just one challenge. That way we're getting feedback on those things. We've all hosted multiple times at our facilities to share best practices or we'll get input, feedback on different things. Now there's been meetings or solely devoted to one person and the group uh, working through a difficult challenge. We helped one of our group members work through buying out his partner, and that was significant. They've certainly helped me with some major decisions along the way.
0: What major decision have they helped you with so we can get more in detail, like what we could ask our group if we created one to help us? Because the buying out the partner was a good example. Is there something else that's a good example that you could ask your friends who are in business here?
1: Yeah, I'd probably rather not talk about the situation they helped me through. Pick another one
0: in the group that someone we don't know, but general ideas of like how these other people can help you other than the buyout thing. That's a good thing To have these groups of business friends for. So what else could we work with them on?
1: Yeah. Another member of the group is in the retail business and was working through whether to scale the business via e-commerce or storefronts. And everyone in the groups contributed, I think, into that and ultimately helped him come to the realization that he had been fighting the e-commerce thing for years and years. And he's seen some growth through that, but ultimately came to the decision that he could just continue to do what he's doing well and just do more of it. He decided to open a second location. He credits the group for helping him work through that.
0: And I think that's important what you brought up too, whatever industry your business is in, like you are saying, you have some industry groups that you have friends in or network within, but you actually talking to people who aren't in your industry, you can actually learn a lot more because people are more open because they're not worried that you're going to steal their exact idea or something like that. But they're coming with a different perspective where you're like, oh, I never even thought about that because you're not in that industry where maybe someone in that industry and everyone uses those like marketing techniques, for example, or something like that. Right. That's where I think it's really powerful and why we have different entrepreneurs on, because you might say one thing here and I'm like, oh, okay, I'm not in the steel industry or even in that part of the United States, but I could use some principles of what you're saying or some thoughts that you have to my industry or whatever company that I have.
1: Right. What I also say is that they ask the dumb questions that sometimes aren't so dumb, but it's like, if you're closer to the business, you wouldn't even think to ask the questions that other people might ask. And then you scratch your head and you go, oh, wow, I've never thought of it that way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like that groups at least helped you over the last couple of years. But why don't we jump back to the story right after that big contract where you got 500K in revenue from it? Yeah. What year are we in now? And then are you considered a partner at that point in time, or what's your role in the company?
1: Yeah, I was a partner with my dad at that time. And we're going
0: to say about seven years in or so?
1: Yeah, probably.
0: Yeah, five years you weren't working and two years you were doing the yacht. Yeah, that would
1: have been about 2012. Okay.
0: Take us from there. I don't know if there's any big instances of growth along the way or anything else that we can learn about your journey from 2012 till today.
1: Yeah, so 2012 is when it really started to take off from 04 to 12 or from 04 to 11. We were just sort of bumping along, very incremental growth. And then in 12, it took off. I think we were up to like 15 employees at that time. There was four of us for five or six years. And then we went to five and then we went to six. And then we went from six to like 15 that next year. Explosive growth in terms of people—we doubled the size of our facility. Ended up purchasing facility across the street from us in order to facilitate the growth. Fortunately, there was a vacant property there that we were able to acquire. Doubled the size of our facility, doubled our people, doubled our revenue, doubled our problems for sure. (laughs) My brother—I'll never forget—I was sitting in my office. It wasn't really much of an office, but an area that where I worked one evening. At that time, I was still working in the shop during the day and then trying to do the office work at night. And I was sitting there probably. kind of slumped down in my chair and my brother walked in and said, what the hell is wrong with you? So I started venting to him and we were having some challenges with team members at that time. Never forget the conversation we had. It was a huge watershed moment for us. I said to him something to the extent of, I guess we're just going to have to tolerate a certain amount of bullshit. We're never going to have any people. And he looked right at me like only a brother can. And he said, absolutely not. No way. We're not going to lower our standards just because you're pissed off and you're frustrated. And he held me accountable. If we would have taken that turn, I would have gave in. And that moment right then and there, I didn't know it at the time, but looking back, I mean, we drew a line in the sand and we said, okay, if we're going to grow, we're only going to do it with good people that probably will forever be the most powerful decision that we've made because we were just named, I know I'm fast forwarding here, we were just named one of the best places to work in Indiana. Fast forward several years to 60 plus employees and terrific recognition that we got there. And it all goes back to that decision we made because mediocrity breeds mediocrity and half-ass breeds more half-ass. And we just made a decision that we were going to have good people and not every decision since then has been perfect or not every hire has been perfect, but the overwhelming majority of our people are great team members and they believe in our culture. They believe in what we're doing. And that just weeds out the ones that don't fit. Mm-hmm. After you had
0: that conversation, it's good that you remember this moment because I think this happens to a lot of us. We don't realize that's a moment right there. But then when you look back several years later, you can see like, okay, I still remember that conversation like it was yesterday. And I didn't realize this would be a watershed moment, but it sounds like it was, at least from what you're saying. Did you have to go back in there and fire some people or what? Because it sounds like the issue is when you're hiring that much, especially from like six people to 15, the issue sounds like it was bad hires or whoever you're hiring maybe they have bad work ethic or they're slacking off and you have felt like you have to stay on top of them 24-7. Obviously, that'd get frustrating. And it sounds like maybe that's what was happening.
1: Yeah, it was a little bit of everything. We like to joke, if you had a pulse and you could weld, we would hire you. (laughs) Right. It was low standards, but it was also a lot of it was our own doing. I mean, we were tolerating things we shouldn't be tolerating. We had no structure and accountability. I mean, if you were late, it is what it is, those kinds of things and just sloppiness. We're new to this management thing at that time. And you start out as a welder, and then the next thing you know, you got three or four people welding and you're welding and managing them. And then you've got a guy that's managing the guys that's welding and you're managing him and you don't really know what the hell you're doing. You're just learning as you go. And then you wake up one day and you go, man, I've got a big ass mess on my hands. So then we just decided, okay, so it's not like we went out and fired 10 people and started over. We stopped tolerating some things and some people had to leave and some people didn't.
0: Yeah. What were the things you stopped tolerating was getting late to work? Cause at least specifics really helped because again, maybe other people are dealing with that right now. They're letting the employee keep coming in late and they realize they shouldn't. So what other things did you have to stop? To- yeah,
1: gosh, looking back, it's hard to even remember what the specifics were. And I think that's as important as anything to say that like none of them were monumental, but it's all the little things that add up. So, yeah, it could be late. It could be not following safety procedures or bad attitude, bad attitude and tolerating those things. It's all the little things that add up. We just slowly started making the decisions that we were going to do things the right way and tighten it up and tightened up our hiring. And now what's funny is when you talk about that, people would think, oh gosh, I bet they have all these rules and they're a bunch of hard asses. But when you get to where we're at now, it's actually the opposite of that because we have a great group of people that all care, that all want to win and that have bought into our culture, our vision. We don't even have to have that many rules. People just know that this is the way we do things.
0: Well, what was your personal work-life balance at this point in time, because it sounds pretty hectic If like, especially these different roles that you're taking on between you were welding and then you're managing the welders and you're managing the manager of the welders. It sounds like you are still
1: welding sometimes too. So personally, did you have any type of work-life balance? No, there's <laughs> no such thing as that. I didn't have any kids. I was just work, but I was having fun. That's the right. important thing. You know, I had fun on the weekends, but five or six days a week, it was head down working. Like I said, that one year we were working two shifts, just doing what we had to do.
0: Was there anything motivating you? I'm just trying to put myself in your situation. If you're in the middle of Indiana and you're a younger dude, like busting your ass trying to grow the company and you had no one else, at least at that point in time, it sounded like to talk to maybe other than your brother,
1: what just kept motivating you? I don't know. I kind of I've wondered that sometimes, too. I mean, today I have definite motivation that we could talk about later. But back then, a lot of it was probably just ego, try to prove people wrong, prove to myself I could do it, prove to other people that I could do it the status quo is not good enough. So you just keep pushing forward and then you want more of it. You want to go further. I mean, it's never the money. I never, I still don't. I didn't think about that. I still don't. I mean, it, it's a scoreboard is all that is. The revenue you do, or the, the net profit that you got to have to survive. If you don't measure that, you don't know it, pay attention to it, measure it. You're, you're not going to last very long. But other than that, that's all it means to me is it's just a, a measuring stick and a scoreboard to make sure we're healthy and we're doing the right things. But it's never been my motivation. And probably early on, it was just trying to prove people wrong prove myself I could do it.
0: Yeah. Did you have anyone that you can remember who didn't believe in you or someone that you specifically wanted to prove wrong? Because I know that's happened to me in the past, but how about for you? Is there any moment where you had to prove all these people wrong? Whether, I don't know if it necessarily was quote unquote, like even your dad, maybe you wanted to prove him right by giving you percentage.
1: Yeah, that probably as much as anything, I've proven them wrong. is probably not the right word, but proven to my dad and my grandpa, I think that you know, hey, I can do this. Right. That was big. I mean, most people, I think if you have any kind of a decent relationship with your parents or grandparents, you seek their validation. Men really seek their father's validation and my grandfather too. So that was more important to me than anything and wanting to prove to them I could do this. And there were some doubters around some naysayers that you would hear about. And that always fueled me too. But
0: well, that definitely fuels me today as well. I think any of the go-getters that we like listen to on the podcast, best to take that energy, that negative energy that you hear about, you you're just like okay I'll remember that and then use that to drive you if you're going to use it for negativity or anything else it's not going to help you at all right I always like appreciate when someone says I can't do something I'm like okay good I got one more tally against me. And then that'll drive me to go ahead and keep growing my own business. Yeah. After 2012, you had this kind of talk with your brother about you weren't going to tolerate these types of things. What kind of happened from there?
1: The next few years were slower, steady growth again. I think we were like at 15 at that time. The next year we were around 19 in 2013. And then The next year, we built our coatings division. But that time, we were just a metal fabrication company. We weren't into the sandblasting and painting and powder coating. We started that division. That was the first time we'd ever launched a new division from the ground up and added several more team members for that. Then there's another level of complexity there because I had to add our first manager besides me. Had a working foreman at that time. My brother was also working in kind of working foreman role as well. And I was really the only manager. So now we've got this coatings facility. Ended up bringing on an investor to help us start the facility. That was something different for our business. At that point, we had grown enough that my dad was kind of looking more toward his exit and he wasn't interested in going further into debt. He said, hey, you know, if you want to do this, that's fine, but you're going to have to do it on your own. And I wasn't well-established enough on my own to go to borrow the money from the bank, brought on a private investor to help us do that. He put up all the money to start this division. So we're off and running, really exciting time. Here we are about a year into it and we're losing money. That was a terrifying time, a lot of learning experience there. I'm trying to manage both divisions at this point in time. And what are the two divisions, just so we know? At this point in time, we just had the fabrication side. We have now launched our coatings division. So we're doing sandblasting, painting, and powder coating and my brother's working with my dad and doing the farm equipment. I'm trying to do the commercial fabrication and manage the coating shop. I remember we were about a year into this new business and we're losing money. And so I remember calling up the gentleman who was our investor at the time, and he's a close friend and mentor of mine now. And I called him and said, Hey, I think we need to hire a manager to run this. And so, you know, I really swallow my pride and here we are losing money and I'm going to him saying, I can't handle it. I think on top of losing money, we need to go put some more money in and hire a manager to manage it. I didn't even have a lot of good math to back it up. I just had a gut feeling that that's what we needed to do. And he never missed a beat and said, if that's what you think we need to do, that's what we're going to do. And he didn't judge me. He didn't say what the hell? Why can't you do this on your own? Now you want to spend more of my money. We went out, we hired a manager. And I think within six or seven months, we had it turned around, heading in the right direction. And really, as far as that division, the rest is history. I mean, it's grown many, many times and is a very profitable part of our company today. But it almost failed before we got it off the ground.
0: Payroll and benefits are hard, especially for small businesses. You don't have the time to be an expert in things like taxes and regulations. And old-school payroll providers just aren't built for the way you work today. Gusto is here to change all that. They're making payroll, benefits, and HR easy for small businesses. In fact, 9 out of 10 customers say Gusto is easier to use than other payroll solutions. Gusto also saves you time. 72% of customers spend less than five minutes to run payroll. Don't believe all the good things you're hearing about Gusto? Well, just Google them. People love Gusto. And how often do you actually hear someone say they love their payroll provider? So, to help support the show, go to gusto.com forward slash millionaire. They're offering our listeners an exclusive limited time deal. You'll get three months free Once you do your first payroll. And again, the link is gusto.com forward slash millionaire. How did you know you needed that manager in case, again, we're at this point in our company where you finally have to let the reins over and let someone else do it? Because honestly, it sounds like you've been spread pretty thin this whole time as far as you're doing, because it sounds like you've been doing everything almost the whole time.
1: Yeah. And you just get to a point where you start dropping the ball and you can't be everywhere at once and you don't feel like you're moving the needle like you need to be And I think what helped me make the decision, I had someone in mind that I thought could really do the job well. And I just felt like if I got him in here, I didn't know how, I didn't know the math, behind it. But if I get him in here, I know we can get this thing going in the right direction. Yeah, that's what we did. So you got the guy that you wanted? I did. It took a while. It was a friend of mine, a guy that I knew from high school. He's a friend of my brother's too. And he was working at a Fortune 500 company and their operations program and just a really solid operational guy. And just the kind of person you want to have involved. And he's now a partner today. Many years later, he's still so important. We've made him a partner in the company, but it took some convincing to get him to leave this big corporation where he's got a pretty sweet gig and come back and join this small family business that in many ways feels like a startup. But going back to what we talked about earlier, had we not made that decision to have good people I don't think we would have attracted someone like Brian. When I talked to him about joining our company, he was already seeing the wheels in motion for what we were building, saw the team that we had put in place. Those things all start to build on each other. What year was this when you hired him? It would have been 2013, I think. Yeah, 2013, 2014.
0: Just keeping track. So we stay on track with the business growth. But up to this point, it sounds like everything keeps growing. Is there something that you were doing personally to get all this growth and all this new business? Because I feel like maybe we're missing something on you keep hiring these people and keep getting these contracts, but kind of started with the yacht contract. But it's not like you just kept getting lucky getting random contracts. You must have been doing something to drive all this new business to you.
1: I never stopped selling. I mean, I'm, st- yeah. I'm still don't Don't today. I mean, if you want to grow, you're the chief sales officer. You got to be, whether you're selling your business to potential team members that you want to come to work or just trying to sell yourself on opportunities to work for other companies. But every opportunity I had, I was trying to find ways to bring in new business.
0: So what were you doing? Was there like a daily routine of something where you're sending out so many emails to specific companies? Where are you trying to find these contracts? What are the little things that are really driving this growth? I don't think we've hit on that. If you were just at your desk managing, people and not having the contracts come in, your company would still probably be the same size as it was when you started?
1: I don't know specifically. I just know I was, I mean, it's all the above. It was emails. It was using social media to our advantage. It was a lot of face-to-face. It was making cold calls. It was social events. Anytime I saw someone that I knew was a potential prospect, it was making sure I got in front of them and educated on them on what we were doing and how we could help them just had to be hustling all the time. And there's a lot of years of just grinding it out, just tiny incremental progress
0: again, like you said something at the beginning, everyone wants to win right now versus doing all these little things. Yeah. But I didn't know if there's one thing in particular that kept you doing it. If there's a certain days of the week where you were out hustling or if like there's different ways that we make sure that we're organized and try to target these customers. I didn't know if you had in your mind a way of thinking about it. Hey, I need to target these people in order to drive the business. I know you're saying this through multiple channels, but there, was there one specific thing that we can grab onto that really helped you drive the growth the whole time?
1: I have those things now. I'm more organized and more professional, probably because I've brought a lot of great people in around me that have helped me grow in that way. I'm not naturally organized and naturally disciplined like that. I'm your stereotypical entrepreneur that starts something, doesn't finish it, and goes to the next. <laughs> right. You know, so it's serial entrepreneur, but back then, no, I didn't have any systems. I didn't have any process for that. I just was grinding and hustling all the time and slowly, but surely it started to grow on top of each other. But today I try to dedicate a half a day or one day a week to being out in the field, trying to get in front of customers. We've got a customer relationship management software called PipeDrive that we use helps me keep track of follow-ups I need to make via phone or email or in person.
0: Yeah. I think PipeDrive is great. I actually use it for the interview for the podcast because it's very, very simple. Yep. Because I've tried tons with my backing. It's like I had to use a CRM and try to keep track of clients that I had talked to or haven't talked to. Yep. I just find out that certain people have good systems that we could all use. Maybe that sounds like at least a good one. A very simplistic. The problem is some of these things get overly complex, and once it gets overly complex, then you're not using it at all.
1: Yeah, pipe drive's so intuitive and user friendly. And I'm the least techie person here. I mean, they make fun of me all the time. I could hardly do anything when I started, but I can use pipe drive. So I'm sort of always the litmus test for that. If I can use it, anybody can use it.
0: Now it sounds like you're organized by having those contacts in a CRM, like you're saying, but even just back in the day, hopefully if you had to do it over again, maybe you'd use a CRM and try to be a little bit more organized with it. Cause that's the issue I had when I was like in sales. And once you get started off, you're just kind of reaching out to everyone. But then I'm like, shit, I forgot who I've talked to about this or that yeah. or whatever, and keep driving the business growth, which it sounds like you were the main guy doing it. I don't know if it was anyone else doing it up to this point? Not up to this point. It helps you stay a little bit more organized to make sure you reach out to those people at a certain time or whenever you can. Yep. All right, so well, yeah. Why don't we jump back in, kind of hit up these last few years as far as where the next companies has gone and what we could learn from you.
1: Yeah, the next big step. So at this point, we've hired the first managers managing the coding facility. Next big step was hired our first sales and marketing person, and he's still with us today. He's part of the executive team and is soon to be a partner in the company as well. So these were the one and two, first two salary employees we ever hired, and he came in to do sales for us. Like you said, at this point, I'm the only one doing sales. I wanted support to help grow the business even further. So I'll bring him in to do sales and marketing. He quickly evolves into sales, marketing, IT, administration, HR, you name it. He was my right-hand man. At this point, my brother, Adam and Brian, our partner are the boots on the ground, guys in the shop every day out in the field. Me and Adam running the inside. Adam Schmidt, who's our business development guy, we're running the inside office, the administrative side of things. We continue to grow. And also right in that time frame, my wife was working full time for a local company in the accounting department. And she comes over and joins us from the accounting standpoint, helps us to make sure that our numbers are good. We've got my brother, Brian out in the field. We've got me and Adam selling, taking care of the administration, and then my wife handling accounting and finance. So we had a good little team together there and kept chipping away. And in 2015, we had an opportunity to do our first acquisition. There was a local business here. And it was an ag, Tri-County Equipment was an ag business that we acquired. They sold farm equipment and trailers. They had a shop and a parts department. We bought that company in 2015 and really consolidated it. It got rid of some of the pieces that didn't make sense for our business. That was a big step forward for us. I think we were up to about 27 team members at that time. That's been a work in progress ever since we took over, but we're really happy with where we've got that business today. That eventually became the business unit that my brother is managing. Now he's off on his own managing this separate business unit.
0: Well, can you tell us a little bit, like how do you buy a business?
1: This company was actually in the process of going out of business we got involved with the ownership and put a plan together to, instead of them piece it all out, we put a deal together to buy the whole thing intact. So we bought the real estate, we bought the assets, we bought the rights to the customer base, and then made a deal with the team members that we wanted to retain to come along with it. So that's how that particular deal went down. Several years later, last year, we did another deal that was a little different. We'll get to that in a minute.
0: So when you're selling off the different parts, are you just closing down different parts of this company that you acquired, but you kept like the majority of it? Because this could be very interesting on if we want to buy a company and want to, how you know which parts to shut down or not use anymore. Just tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Well, every deal's different. You just have to look at what makes sense. So for this specific deal, it happened to be in the same town we were in. So operationally, at this point, we're about out of room where we're at. This was a major piece of real estate in our town. It was opportunity for us to grow. Our fallback plan was no matter what, that we were going to pick up a significant piece of real estate to grow our core business. So that was the core piece. And then we thought everything around that We would just figure out a way to help cash flow this new investment. We bought it and tried to keep it as intact as we could in the beginning to sort of let the dust settle. And then over the course of two or three years, we exited parts of the business, some of the lines they were selling. We exited some of those lines that didn't make sense for us. We tried to backfill it with other revenue streams that were more core to our business. Our goal was to over a three-year period, we never grew the top line, but we held it steady while we were simultaneously removing things that didn't make sense. And when you got to the end of the plan, the business was the same size as what it was, but it was full of revenue that was more core to what we did. That was the approach we took and it was not without challenges, but it worked out. That was about 2015, you're saying? Yeah, we acquired that in January 1 of 2015.
0: Was that strategic? You say January 1, 2015. Was there a reason like exactly on January 1?
1: Well, the deal was coming together late in the year. And then, yeah, of course, if you're approaching the year, you want to start fresh. You know, our fiscal year was January 1 anyway. So, okay. It made sense from an accounting standpoint to start clean January 1.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Cause I agree with you on it. Like, there's certain reasons to make it very simple versus if you had got it halfway through the year or something like that and you have your accounting being different. Or I didn't know if there's tax implications of pre- particular reason why you did it on that date or whatever. So, okay. You grew that. It seems like everything stabilized and worked out with that deal.
1: And you want to jump to closer to where you are today in the next acquisition? Yeah. So that was 2015. The next year, 2016, kind of a cool milestone there. That was the first year we broke 5 million in revenue. That was really exciting. We had went from a few hundred thousand up to 5 million in annual revenue. We're at about 32 team members at that point. And 16 and 17 were somewhat business as usual. We're, we're kind of organic growth. We're trying to figure this new acquisition out and get it where we want it. That was really the mark of 16 and 17. In 2018, we felt like, we had the previous acquisition sort of where we wanted it to be. The business was stabilized. We had brought on two more members to the executive team to round out our complete team. Now, that was a director of operations and our vice president of finance. So at that point, my wife decided to step down from finance and we brought on a CPA that we thought could all help us go to the next level and handle the complexities of the business and give my wife a little more flexibility. We have two young kids now. It was a lot for her. She started out as the bookkeeper of a small family business and ended up sort of as the CFO of a multi-million dollar company with different operating divisions and a lot of complexities. And so it was time for her and she did a wonderful job of transitioning that to our VP of Finance. And we felt like at that point, we were ready to make the next step. We kind of had the team built. We had the business stabilized. And in January of this year, we made our second major acquisition. We acquired a structural fabrication company that was about an hour away from us. So that was the next big step, stepping out geographically. We've got a physical location an hour away we're just wrapping up our first year there. It's been a tremendous year. We've been very, very blessed with, there's been no surprises. Again, not without challenges, but no big surprises. And so we've got a dozen team members at that facility working, we do structural fabrication there.
0: Well, were you worried about it's a little bit different? You said it's an hour away versus everything
1: else has been really pretty close, right? All the other acquisitions? That's right. We were intentional about that. I mean, we felt like we had sort of bumping up against the law of diminishing returns here locally. So in one way, from an employment standpoint, in the business we're in, our location doesn't matter that much for our customer base. It matters if you're in California or here, but in terms of an hour, that's irrelevant. So what does matter is access to talented team members. That was one of the thoughts for us looking at a decentralized growth plan in our business that just allows us, if we have many smaller operations around the Midwest, it allows us to just expand our opportunity for employment.
0: Well, I mean, looking back, was there anything else that we missed as far as the most difficult part about you growing your company to where it is today?
1: There were some times, I'd say in the 2015-2016 timeframe when we took on our first acquisition, We've grown it significantly at that point. There's a handful of managers and quite a bit of complexity. We were dealing with cash flow challenges of that growth and new business model that had different cash flow cycles. There were some really stressful times from a financial standpoint. Even though we're growing like crazy, we're not seeing the cash in the bank. And that's a lot of business owners understand that. I mean, first thing you got to do is be profitable. And then next thing you got to do is have cash. And profitability doesn't always equal cash. depending on different things that are happening within the business. So there were some really, really stressful times there and we got through those. I learned a lot of lessons through that. Fortunately, we kept our head above water and got through that. A lot of companies, they don't make it through those times. And we just want to make sure that we learn from those lessons and continue to do things the right way moving forward so that we don't ever go back there again.
0: What'd you learn so we can learn from it as far as hopefully that challenge doesn't pop up again? Obviously it will at some point, I imagine, but what have you learned to keep that from happening again in the future?
1: Well, there's a couple things that happened there. One was the same year we did the acquisition, we saw our first downturn in our core business. We were doing a lot in coal and oil. And that year, there was a big pullback in those two markets. Simultaneously to doing a big investment, we had a pullback in our core business. So that strapped us right away. The lesson that we've learned there is to really make sure that we're diversified and that we're not so dependent on one industry, which we're really conscientious about doing that, uh, constantly analyzing how much revenue we're doing in each market sector. And then the other big lesson there was to be more proactive in terms of financial management. So I don't even think we had much of a line of credit, if anything. I mean, we had just been so conservative and we just didn't give ourselves any cushion. So then when you're playing defense on that and you're scrambling, it just compounds everything. And you can't make smart decisions if you're strapped for cash. Since that time, we've been much more proactive. We've learned ways to better manage our cash flow. And we've got a lot of cushion now. Even if we don't need our line of credit, we make sure we have a significant line of credit that's there. In case we do have a large customer that doesn't pay on time, or we do have a short-term pullback in the market, it helps you sleep a lot better at night
0: this is smart because I probably wouldn't have thought about it up to that point. I mean, have you thought about it up to that point about all your clients kind of being in those two industries and have you expanded to like another industry as well to try to diversify this risk?
1: Yeah. It was something that we have to continually manage. I mean, now we feel like we're too heavy in the automotive sector. So, We have strategic initiatives going into 2019 about how we want to push more into some other market sectors. And we still do call in oil work. We try to grow in other areas, just something you have to continually keep your eye on.
0: Had you literally thought about that beforehand? Because I probably wouldn't have. And now I understand what you're saying is like, after that happens to you once, you're like, okay, just make sure I don't have all my clients in these two buckets, right?
1: Yeah, I probably hadn't thought about it. I mean, we were just growing and going where the work was. And Had we not done that acquisition in the same year, it probably wouldn't have been as tough. But when you have two or three things hit all at once, it can be really challenging. And the other thing we've learned and we have to remember is there's a thing called the normalcy bias. And you tend to, the things are going really well and you think you can't do anything wrong. And you think everything you do is going to be as good as the last one. And all of a sudden you get hit between the eyes and you realize, okay, it's not all going to be We start the coatings division and it works really great. We do this next thing and it works really great. So we just did an acquisition this year, I mentioned. It went really, really well. We're just very blessed with that. But we have to remember as we look at other opportunities that we can't get intoxicated by that normalcy bias and think it's all going to be this easy. You got to keep your guard up. Yeah,
0: absolutely. We appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. Is there like anything else that you want to leave the entrepreneurs who are listening just for you being able to grow the family business from three or four people to 60 plus people today has been pretty amazing. And thank you for taking us along the journey. But any last words of wisdom for everyone who's listening?
1: I think this positive energy and forward momentum is so powerful. I think that's something that we don't talk about enough in the business world. People talk about time management all the time, but you know, I talk to our team sometime about how energy management is so much more important than time management, or at least if you're in a, a role where you contribute with your mind, for sure, it's more important. So just power of positive energy and forward momentum. So you can't let yourself get bogged down by negativity and things that are pulling you down. You got to get away from that and just continue to move forward. I love the saying, a rising tide lifts all ships. I think it's so true. And if you keep that forward momentum rolling and good things will happen.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's really important because I get tired of all the time management bullshit too. Sometimes I'll be like, okay, I'm trying to be as efficient as I can, right? I think all of us as business people are. But then I kind of get down when I'm like, oh, well, I wasn't as efficient as I could have been the last couple hours. And then your energy can just even be drained from that. But yeah. the power of positive thinking and having positive energy, And I've never heard of anyone calling like energy management or whatever you were saying earlier. It's just that makes a huge difference. If you're going to go in a room and be positive versus someone who's negative all the time. If I'll just walk the other way if I like see them on the street and know that they're like a negative person just going to come to complain to me about something. Right. Right. That. Energy of just thinking positively. The positivity definitely rains off, and I think that's really important. What kind of what you emphasize there? Yeah, we appreciate you doing the interview. If someone wanted to reach out and contact you and say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them
1: to reach you? On LinkedIn, of course. So we've got our website nixcompanies.com. I'm on Facebook.
0: Yeah, it's Matthew N I X Nix. What happens if they wanted to send you a personal email? Is that okay?
1: Yeah, that'd be fine. It's M Nix, so M N I X. At nickscompanies.com Cool.
0: All right, Matthew, well, thanks again for doing the interview and we really appreciate it. Well, yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun telling the story. Do you know someone who would be an awesome guest to have on the show? If you do, then send us an email at Austin at millionaire-interviews.com. We're always looking for smart, beautiful entrepreneurs who are willing to share their story. In other news, If you want to leave us feedback about the show, give us a call or text us on our new hotline. Simply dial 1-305-985-3469. The best comments, questions, or feedback will be shared on a future episode, so don't be scared to get creative. Thank you for listening to this episode. It's been made available for free by our podcast sponsors and our Patreon members, so thank you to you both especially our newest and oldest Patreon members for paying for this episode. So would you be willing to pay for someone else to listen for free? If you are willing to help support us and get some awesome Patreon perks along the way, then go to austinsbigp.com. So again, if you're willing to pay it forward and allow someone else to listen to this episode for free, then go to austinsbigp.com.